Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. And while you're turning there, I just want to say to our graduates, it's already been said a few times, but uh, we just want to say we are so excited for you as you end this chapter of life and move into the next big chapter. And it's probably the biggest chapter of your life as you start pursuing careers and future plans and so forth. But it is a It is a big, big adventure. So we're just excited for you. We want you to know that uh, we're proud of you. We love you. We're going to be praying for you. And uh, I'm just excited to uh, to hear, you know, in 10 or 20 years from now, where all of you land because you all have so much potential and God has awesome plans for you. I know he's going to do some amazing things in you and through you. So just looking forward uh, to to seeing that that happen in your lives. So just know we love you, we're praying for you. And I also want to say while you're turning there to Romans 8, for the rest of the congregation, I just want to encourage, sometimes when we come to these special services, maybe there's a, a sense of this message is just for the graduates, and I just want you to know it's, it's not. Uh, it's, it's, it's able to impact each one of us where we're at, because we're going to be talking about courage in a chaotic culture. I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we consider the the climate that we see our society in and our culture in, I mean, it's just becoming more and more hostile to believers. Uh, Whether you're checking... You're checking the news or you're listening to the radio. Uh, you're hearing that, that our world is walking more and more away from morality, more and more away from Christianity, more and more away from truth. In fact, we are in an age that scholars have actually classified as the age of unbelief. The age of unbelief. For, for Generation Z, this is the first generation that's been classified as a generation without the story of God. Without the story of God. And it's not your fault, for those of you who are in that generation, you who are graduating, it's not your fault. The generations before have not always stood up when we need to stand up, and we haven't always shared the gospel when we need to share the gospel, and we haven't always preached the word when we need to preach the word. But the generation that we have today, and, and the culture and the climate that we are in, we are in a postmodern, post Christian, pretty much post everything kind of culture. In fact, two years ago, the Oxford Dictionary had to come out with a new word to explain where we're at, and it's called post-truth. That's the new word back in 2017. Post-truth is this, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional and personal belief. Did you catch that? Like, truth has less influence than personal emotions and beliefs. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when we think about it, what makes me happy rules the world. The only authority that there is in our culture is my authority by my emotions. It's illogical. When you take it to its logical conclusion, if there is one, it's nothing but anarchy. And it's amazing how many are living under this premise that, hey, objective truth, objective facts kind of trigger me, and I don't like those. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run with my feelings and run with what makes me happy. And as far back as humankind goes, we didn't need a word for the fact that truth doesn't matter. And now we do, post-truth. When you couple that 
with how fast our culture is moving forward, it just seems unbearable and unstoppable maybe some days. In fact, in 1913, there was a, char- uh, there a French poet named Charles Puguay who, who wrote in, in 1913 that in his last 30 years, from 1883 to 1913, he said, the world has advanced more in those 30 years than it has since the time of Christ. I wonder what he would say about our day and age. If he, if he jumped ahead 106 years to where we're at, I mean, we can, we can look at technology, we can, we can look at culture, we can look at politics, we can look at the climate, and, and we're just barreling forward, barreling forward, and I would say in the wrong direction. I'd like to propose to you this morning that the light shines brightest in the darkness, though. Light shines brightest in the darkness. Back in 2013, I, I had the privilege of attending the Evangelical Free Church of America's National Conference in New Orleans, and, and, and the, the president for the EFCA was there from Canada, and, and Canada is ahead of us a little bit in this postmodern move, and he said, you know, here, here's the awesome reality that even though it seems like everything is crumbling down as far as this moral fabric, he said, the gospel is thriving. People want truth. They want to hear truth, and, and, and the light shines brightest when it's darkest. And so we have an awesome, exciting time for us. It's not an easy time, but it's an exciting one ahead of us. And and graduates, this is where you're headed for universities and where you're headed in the workforce, a a culture that does not care about God. Our world is full of contradiction. It's full of confusion. Christianity has been pushed to the margins as intolerant and irrelevant, yet God isn't phased by it. Can I just encourage you with that? God isn't surprised by what's happening. He's not up in heaven trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do now? What's plan B? In fact, in Matthew 16, Jesus says uh, that nothing, not even the, the gates of hell, will prevail against his people, against his church, against his mission. So what's to be done with it? Well, British pastor, several years back, he said this, we should not ask what is wrong with the world, for that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask what has happened to all the salt and the light. What has happened to all the salt and the light? You see, God's people are called to operate from courage, not fear. And when we live courageously, putting our hope in the reality of who God is and what he's able to accomplish, it changes everything. Even though we live in a time that's confusing, it's transient, it's difficult, God is calling us to be bold and strong as his people, to have courage. He will accomplish his purposes. He will carry out his mission. Don't live in fear, for God is still at work, and he has put us in this time and place with a purpose. Can I just encourage you that when the church grows comfortable, it grows stale, it grows weak, and it grows apathetic. But when the church is under persecution, it thrives. And we can see that in the first 300 years when Roman emperors were putting Christians in the Colosseum and they were losing their lives to lions and to other warriors, when they were putting Christians on poles and lighting them up for their, their barbecues. I mean, the Christianity grew 3% every year for those first 300 years, and they didn't have a single pamphlet on how to share the gospel because people were just living their faith out boldly and courageously and moving forward with their faith in God. So how should we stand in Christ? Well, Paul writes here in Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, and he gives us this amazing creed, if you would, this amazing uh, um, detailing of who God is, and that's what we're going to look at here this morning. So Romans 8, verse 31, Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or famine, or excuse me, or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a deep joy for us to be able to come together as the people of God to celebrate and to worship you. Father, for you alone are God, and as David writes, there is no one like you. So, Father, it's a humbling privilege, maybe, maybe one that even I take for granted too often. And Father, I thank you for the joy of being able to come together with brothers and sisters to worship, to, to hear from your word through the Sunday school hour, through this time. Father, to be able to encourage one another, to build each other up. And I pray that this morning you would help us to not only be hearers of the word of God, but to be doers of it as well. Father, we praise you for our graduates. Thank you for all that you've accomplished in their lives to this point and all that you're going to continue to accomplish in and through them. And Father, we just want to simply ask that you would lead them, that you would guide them, that you would help them to grow in their love for you and help us as a church to continue to support to continue to pour in, to continue to pray, to continue to uplift before you. Father, this morning, we ask that you would be honored. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul gives in this passage, verse 31 through 39, he gives five highlights or five items that Five reasons, if you would, of why we can live courageously. So if you have an outline in your bulletin, I encourage you to pull it out. Point number one is simply this. We can live courageously because of who God is. Verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? Well, what things is he speaking about? And I would, I would just simply say, I, I think he's speaking about the first eight chapters of Romans because it's kind of like one big theme. We're dealing with sin, we're dealing with the law and how the law can't save you, and then we're dealing with justification by faith in Christ alone. And then you jump into chapter 5, and, and here's the fruit of justification, the fruit of being saved. Chapter 6, he deals with, now we can identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We can say no to sin because of his grace and because of his mercy. And chapter 7, he gives us the wonderful tell, or the wonderful, wonderful illustration that there is going to be struggle. Like, even as a believer, there is struggle. Can I get an amen on that? Don't leave me up here by myself. All right, like, like we still struggle. It's, it's the sin or the spirit against the flesh, right? And so we still have this battle. Yet Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? No condemnation. And so he says, what shall we say to all of these things? Simply, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, a lot of people are against us, possibly. Satan and his forces are against us. But can I just tell you, they are nothing compared to the one who is for us. 
If God is for us, everything else is nothing and not worth our focus. If God is for us, he is the, if you think about it, he is the creator of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the ruler of the universe, the great I am. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. He alone is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If God is for us, who's against us? The psalmist highlights this in Psalm 56, verse 11. He says, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118 The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And if you think it's only an Old Testament thing, the writer of Hebrews writes, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 91, 14, the Lord says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If God is for us, who's against us? What can man do to me? You see, I think we need to enter into each day reminding ourselves of the beauty of the gospel and of the power of God and that God is for us. There's no need to fear. There's no need to fear because our loving Father wants the best for his children. Point number two is this. We can live courageously because of God's gift. Verse 32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now this is an argument, if you would, from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is this. You were a sinner when Christ died for you. You were an enemy of the cross. You and I were enemies of the cross when, when Christ came. That's what Romans 5 tells us. And yet he sent his son, right? And so what won't he do now that we are his children? He desires to bless us. He desires to give all things freely, as Paul says. Like It's the same kind of argument that, that Jesus uses in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about, look, if, if God provides for the lilies of the field and he provides for the um, excuse me, the birds, right? Like, why won't he provide for you? Psalm 8, the psalmist says, we are the crown of his creation. God is for us. If we ever worry that we have exhausted God's mercy, just remember, you can't. Just remember, he's already given his best for you. Nothing else compares to his son. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God does not expect you to get it all put together and get it all figured out before you can come to the cross. It's come as you are. He recognizes that we're broken and we weren't created to deal with sin. God is for us. If the Father did not withhold the Son from us, what, why would He withhold His blessings from us? We can live courageously because point number three of God's declaration. God's declaration. Verse 33, Paul writes, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And again, many will. Excuse me. Many will. They'll bring a charge against us. The world will. Satan will. In fact, we know from Job, Isaiah, and Revelation that Satan loves to accuse believers day and night. That's like his passion. And you've heard some of those lies. Maybe, I know I've bought into some of those lies at times. Like, you've heard these things. If you really loved God, you wouldn't struggle with that. Are you really worthy? Could God really love you? Can God forgive you for that? Those are the lies the enemy loves to accuse us with and and put before the throne. But the voice of our enemy is silenced by the loud and powerful voice of Jesus. 
God's declaration over us silences Satan's accusations against us. You have been declared righteous, holy, not because of yourself, but because of Christ. You've been justified. God is the one who justifies, and he has declared us holy and right. We stand righteous in Christ. We're chosen in Christ. We're accepted in Christ. I think understanding the meaning of justification should really bring peace to our hearts to recognize, to recognize that it's not about us, but it's about Christ. When we put our faith in him, his righteousness is imputed upon us. And when, Christ, or excuse me, when God the Father sees us, he doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as saints in Christ. It's all about being in Christ. We may accuse ourselves and men may accuse us, but God will never take us to court and accuse us. Jesus has already paid the penalty so we can live courageously because of God's declaration. Point number four. We can live courageously because of Jesus' interceding. Verse 34, Paul writes, Who is the one who condemns? Well, the one who could condemn is Jesus Christ. But look what he says. Does Jesus condemn us? No, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was raised. He's at the right hand of God. And he's also interceding for us. Also interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father now, constantly reminding the Father that we are his, that our sin has already been condemned, not in us, but in Christ. He's not, by the way, reminding a reluctant father. It's not like God is up there thinking, well, Isaac said he wasn't going to do that again, and now he did. I don't know if I can forgive him. Should I really love him still? Like, like he's not a reluctant father. Jesus is reminding the one who sent the son. The Father, so for God, John 3.16, so loved the world that he sent his Son. And we, we seem to forget John 3.17, which says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus has been willing, was willing to come and die, and, and being buried and raised, he's defeated sin, death, and hell. And he's interceding for us. I think it's awesome that even in verse 26, it talks about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. And it's just an awesome picture of God is for us. Jesus intercedes for us as our high priest. He can give us grace that we need to overcome temptation and defeat the enemy. He intercedes for us as our advocate. First John, he, he forgives our sins. He restores our fellowship. Intercession means that Christ represents us before the throne of God, and we don't have to represent ourselves. Intercession means effective intervention. Like his death, burial, and resurrection was effective to accomplish salvation on our behalf. Hebrews 7, verse 25, the writer writes, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Point number five, reason number five, we can live courageously because of God's love. I don't know if you caught that in there, but in verse 35, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And if you jump to verse 39, he's, he's, he's summing all of these things up, basically saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And, and I can imagine the, Romans, or, or the, the, the Christians here in Rome saying, but hold on, I mean, we're facing hard times, we're losing our lives, we're facing tribulation and hard, uh, hardship, and I mean, does that mean God doesn't love us? And Paul writes, well, will those things separate us? 
And verse 36 there, that's a quotation from Psalm 44. And it's the reality of this. As believers, we're not, we're not immune to hardship. Like, we don't avoid hardship. Hardship is, it's not, it hasn't been promised to us to have a rosy, peachy life in Christ. Hardship is promised. Paul in Philippians 1 says it's not only been granted to you to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, hardship is going to happen. And that, that quote there from Psalm is, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Like this is to be expected if we're following Christ. Can I just say, if it's comfortable for you to be following Christ, you might be doing something wrong. Like, like the life in Christ is going to have hardship. It's going to have persecution. It's going to have trials. But in all these things, verse 37, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And overwhelmingly conquer in the Greek is kind of like, man, you, you've super conquered. Like you've conquered and then conquered it again. Like Jesus gave you victory and then more victory on top of more victory in Christ. And then Paul, I love here in verse 38 where he writes, For I am convinced, because up until this point, it's kind of been a real logical argument, logical debate. And when he says, for I am convinced, this is like personal conviction, personal testimony. Like, there's nothing that's going to take this from me. I am convinced that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. I just want you to be encouraged that you are loved by the King of kings and Lord of lords. If God is for us, who can be against us? My friends, in Christ, I think, I think we need to understand that we can, we can just simply rest in Him and rejoice in Him. There's no condemnation, no obligation, no frustration, no separation. If God is for us, who can be against us? Billy Graham once said, The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is crucial. Every generation is strategic. But we are not responsible for the past generation. And we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one. However, we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible at the judgment seat of Christ for how well we fulfilled our responsibilities and took advantage of our opportunities. My friends, are we taking advantage of every opportunity that the Lord sets before us to share the gospel, to live love, to to show Christ's love and mercy through our words and our actions, to live out grace, to be in unity, to live humbly? Like when we look at the cultural climate of what we're dealing with, it can be fearful at times, but God isn't faced. And we as believers need to stand up and be bold and courageous for the sake of the gospel because God is for us. I believe today the world is hungry for the gospel. I believe the world is looking for examples to them of what it looks like to actually have peace, real peace, peace with God. There are opportunities every day for us to to live it out. So I would just encourage you, and graduates encourage you, that as you step into universities, as you step into the workforce, and for each one of us that's already there, 
May we continue to stand strong and be bold and courageous for the sake of the kingdom of God, for his glory, and for his honor. We are called to bring the gospel to our generation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it really is a joy and an honor to be able to worship you today. Father, we thank you for the boldness that Paul writes with, that that we can stand boldly and courageously for the sake of the gospel. So Father, I ask that you would help us, help us to stand tall and strong, not in our own power, not in our own strength, but in the power of Christ. Lord, help us to be reminded of the fact that you are for us. So even though other things will be against us and will want to accuse us, Lord, we don't need to live in fear. We can live in bold courage in Christ. So Father, again, we pray for the graduates as they're wrapping things up here in the next few weeks. Help them to keep their eyes upon you. Help us to keep our eyes upon you that we would move forward boldly with our faith in Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.